you would, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. That's where we will be this evening, Acts chapter 15. And if any of you are struggling with what to read in your time in the Word, if you uh, feel burdened to read the Scriptures on a daily basis or close to a daily basis and you don't know where to read, we're going to be studying Acts for a while. So if you want, you can read through Acts, and that way you'll be up to date as far as what we're going through. Because a lot of times when we preach Acts, especially on an evening service, we cover like 30 verses, 35 verses, 40 verses, and we don't read them all in succession. And so uh, for you to stay up on that is helpful. And we've been going through Romans for quite some time. So Acts or Romans are two fantastic books that you could having your own time in the Word. Um, one of my favorite parables in the Bible is the parable of the uh, landowner. It's in Matthew chapter 20. We won't look there, but it's the, the landowner and the workers in the vineyard. And so you have this uh, landowner who had a vineyard, and he went to the town square at the beginning of the day, and he hired men to come work. And it was around 6 a.m. You know, their days were 12 hours, sunrise, sunset, 6 to 6. So he hires some men to come work, and, and he agrees with them that he's going to pay them a day's wage, a denarius. So he, they go out and they work. And three hours later, that same landowner goes into the city square, finds more workers, and says, hey, I'll pay you, come and work. And so they come work. And he does that again at noon. So half the day is gone. And these uh, workers are still there. There's, there's men who are just trying to find something to do. And so he has them come work. And, and this owner does this at, at 6 a.m., like I said, 9, 12, 3. And then he does it at 5 p.m. And evidently there's workers that were still out there at 5 p.m. And he says, will you come work with me? And they say, yeah and I'll pay you whatever is fair. So they work from five to six, an hour. Meanwhile, when they get out there at five, you know, there's workers who've been working since three, there's been workers who've been working since 12, there's been workers who've been working since nine, and there's workers who've been working all day. And so come pay time, they all line up. And he tells, the landowner, tells his servants uh, to line the men up based on how much they've been working, from the least to the most. So the guys that had been working only one hour, they were first in line. They were first to be paid. And then the guys in the back, those were the guys that had been working all day. If you're familiar with their story, you know what happens. Well, the men who had only been working one hour were paid a day's wage, a denarius, for one hour. That's a great deal. And so the guys in the back who had been working all day thought, well, if they get a denarius, if they get a day's wage, what are we going to get? And what do they get? The same thing. Now the whole point of that parable is to show just how gracious God is. But a lot of times when we read that parable, we tend to side with the guys in the back of the line that have been working all day. At least... I kind of do. Mentally, I think, man, they got a raw deal. Instead of thinking, those guys that only worked one hour, 
really got an awesome deal. And frankly, we as Christians need to see ourselves as the ones who get the great deal. Because we didn't have to quote-unquote be hired in the first place. Right? So in this whole parable, you see just how gracious the vineyard owner is, the landowner is, to these workers. Didn't have to hire them, but he did. And when he did hire them, he treated them both fairly and generously. Now, that being said, we're going to read a story about some believers that had similar mindset, but a similar mindset as it related to what people should look like when they become Christians. What should people look like when they become Christians? What changed for you when you got saved? I mean, I want you to think about that. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, what things changed? And how quickly did they change? And maybe think of some other people that perhaps you disciple, or perhaps that you are familiar with here at Grace Church, and maybe you remember the days that they got saved. What things changed in their life when they got saved? Did it look like you? And then as things changed, both for yourself and for other Christians, what expectations did you have for yourself as far as what things were going to continue to change? both in yourself and them. Because I think if we're not careful, we can become much like the workers who were hired at 6 a.m. in the morning, being told they were going to get a day's wage. And they got it. But the workers that get hired later on, maybe three, five, when they get generously rewarded, and maybe we kind of look at all the work we've done up to that point as a Christian. You know, well, I got saved at this point, and I've been faithful all these years, and I had to make all of these sacrifices, and I've put off all of these things and put on all these things, and this is who I am as a Christian. And now this other person, brand new in the faith, they get to enjoy the same privileges that I do? Don't they have to put off all the stuff I put off? Don't they have to put on all the stuff I put on? Wait a second. When I got saved, this part of my life changed just like that. For them, it's not changing. If they're really saved, it better change. Oh, it's not changing. I don't even know if they're saved. And if we're not careful, we could be adding to the gospel. So as we look at Acts chapter 15 today, what I want to leave, the, the thought I want to leave to you is this. And really, Acts 15 is about unity in the body of Christ when you have brand new believers added to the body of Christ. Just when things get nice and comfy and settled, more new believers get added. And it makes for an interesting scenario in the church. And you know what? That's our church history. That's our family history from a Christian standpoint. We got at it at one point in time, if you know Christ. And as we grow, we get to see other people added. And guess what? As they're added, they bring their own issues. They bring their own backstory. They bring their own areas where perhaps they're growing or perhaps where they're not growing. 
But the thought I want to leave with you is this. As souls are saved, the church must work to maintain unity both in doctrine and practice. Okay? The church must work to maintain unity in doctrine and practice. And if you're part of the church, not like this building, these seats, this carpet, but the church, the body of believers, then maintaining unity in doctrine and practice will take effort. It will take work. Okay, so let's look at Acts chapter 15 and see how this plays out. Some men, by the way, here we are. We're at the end of uh, Paul's first missionary journey. He's gone through several cities. He's now come back to Antioch. They're celebrating what God's doing. Now, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. And when they arrived in Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. Verse 5, But some of the sect of, a sect of the Pharisees who had believed stood up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to direct them to observe the law of Moses. Alright, so here's the issue. You have the Great Commission, right? Jesus tells the disciples... All believers in Christ go to all the world, preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Ghost, right? And then Acts 1.8, you'll be witnesses of me starting where? Jerusalem. So what ethnicity or what ethnic group was found in Jerusalem? Jews. And then you have greater Judea, which was still predominantly Jewish. There were some Gentile proselytes, but they came and they basically acted like practicing Jews. Okay? But then you have Samaria, still a larger Jewish you know, population, but more and more non-Jewish. And then you have the uttermost parts of the earth, predominantly non-Jewish. And the gospel was supposed to go, and it was going. And God was bringing about new birth. Souls were being saved. They were being added to the church. But guess what? They were being added to the church. So it wasn't just like, here's a bunch of new people and you're all going to play together nicely. It's, here's a bunch of new people and they don't look like you. They don't talk like you. They don't have your background. In fact, not too long ago, you would have viewed them as unworthy of having a meal. I mean, they were unclean. And now... They're side by side singing psalms, perhaps. They're participating in the Lord's Supper with you. I mean, how does that all work? Well, it was working. But it wasn't working smoothly. At least, it wasn't working smoothly everywhere. So much so that you had a pretty significant number of Jews that were believers that felt very strongly about their Jewish heritage, in particular, their obedience to the law. 
saying that these Gentiles that were saved, in order to really be saved, they needed to be circumcised and follow the law. Verse 2, or I'm sorry, verse 1 says, Men came down from Judea teaching the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They were directly adding to the gospel. I mean, they were saying salvation is through Jesus and circumcision, or through Jesus and following the law. But when we look at verse 5, I do see a difference. First of all, there's a difference because in verse 5, we know they're believers who are saying this. Some of the sect of the Pharisees who had believed. So these were Christians, but these were Jewish leaders, Pharisees, stood up saying it's necessary to circumcise them and direct them to observe the law of Moses. So it wasn't just these Judaizers, perhaps unbelieving Judaizers, that were forcing these rules on these Gentile Christians. It was actually Jewish believers, Jewish Christians that felt very strongly. And if we go back to the parable of the landowner, there's part of us that can understand why. Not saying that it's right, but if you've been working out there since 6 a.m., as it were, figuratively, if you've been a, you know, a follower of the law, a student of the law, following the Mosaic Code, the, the sacrifices, and, da, 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 and doing all that for years, and then seeing your faith realized in the form of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, you trusting Him, now... It's not as if you're believing something completely contradictory to what you used to do. You're just believing in the fulfillment of that. Does that make sense? The Gentiles, however, were a different bag. Many of them were just pagans. I mean, they worshiped foreign deities. They, they, you know, their worship consists of sex practices. Their worship consists of narcotics. Their worship consists of all of these crazy things that look nothing like the law. And yet... They could just ask Jesus to be their Savior and, and they, were, they were equal? I mean, is that fair? And that's exactly what they're working out here. This is a really big deal. In fact, in church history, this was the first church council that we read of in the early church. And you say, why is that a big deal? Well, in church history, church councils were comprised of godly leaders, godly men, that worked out core doctrines. Like, was Jesus fully God and fully man? Which books should be included in our Bible? Which books are part of God's Word? Which aren't? What about the human will? What about man? They worked out these major doctrines. And I think a lot of times when we look at Acts 15 through the lens of this was the first church council, we actually miss out on the reality that these were a bunch of young Christians working out what exactly they believed and what was biblical. And so that's really what I want to keep us focused on as we look at Acts 15. Early Christians who are trying to work out what it is that they were believing or what it is that they believed in relationship to Jews and Gentiles and salvation. Okay? And the ultimate goal is unity. Now, first things first. Unity must be rooted in sound doctrine. Okay? Unity must be rooted in sound doctrine. I don't know if you watch award shows. I don't. Okay? Um, early in 2018, Oprah Winfrey uh, spoke 
very eloquently, very powerfully at an awards show, and it went viral. I mean, millions of people, you know, listened to her and were saying, Oprah for president, and, and just a really powerful speech. But she used a phrase that went viral, and it was a phrase, speaking your truth. You know, we live in a day and age that holds on to the belief that you can have your truth. And what is true for you is your truth. Now, what might be true for me is my truth. But you have your truth, and you should speak your truth, and I have my truth, and I should speak my truth. Now, what if your truth contradicts my truth? Well, that really doesn't matter. Because the reason why my truth is my truth is because of the power and the influence of my experiences. Because of what has happened to me, or what I've discovered, and how powerful that is. And so this is true for me. Now, it may not be true for you, but that really doesn't matter. Can I tell you, that is not what was taking place here. Because you very easily could have had men on one side who said, this is our truth, look at our history. And you have others who say, this is our truth, look at what Jesus said. There wasn't a your truth and my truth. It was truth. And if there is to be genuine unity in the body of believers, it must be rooted in sound doctrine. First of all, they went to the Scriptures. And as far as unity being rooted in sound, sound doctrine, they went to the Scriptures. Okay, So as we're looking here in Acts chapter 15, verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. Now, I want us to to skip down here to verse 13. I'm going to go back to verses 7 through 12, but let's look at verse 13. After they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With these words, the prophets agree, just as it is written, After these things I will return, and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen. And I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. What's he doing? He's quoting Old Testament Scripture. Why is he doing that? He's quoting Old Testament Scripture because he's showing how the prophets, that these Jews who were saying, those Gentiles need to be circumcised, who were adding to the Gospel, he was saying, The law that you profess to know and that you profess to obey predicts what's happening. Gentiles are going to be born again. Look back at verse 7. After there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. Just like you all believe. They heard the gospel, they received it. So if you were in the audience listening to Peter or listening to James, if you were a believer, you are a believer in the same way that the other person was a believer. You heard the gospel, you repented from your sin, you trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. He forgave you. You repent, you believe. Faith, repentance. This is salvation. Same for Jew, same for Gentile. So, going to the Scriptures 
showed how Peter was preaching the gospel that they all believed. James was affirming the Old Testament law, which they had been preaching, the Old Testament prophets. And so as a result, in order to address this conflict that was going on, they were going to the Scriptures first. And when they went to the Scriptures and they had that truth, they also had experience affirming what was in the Scriptures. Look at verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. What was God doing? God was saving Gentiles. We read about it in the Scriptures. We see it firsthand. So if we're reading about it in the Scriptures, this is true. We're seeing it firsthand. Scriptures are being affirmed. Verse 10, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Unity is built upon truth, but it's built upon the truth that, that affirms the Scriptures and has experience being able to testify to that and then recognizing what's true, but then also what isn't true. And the fact of the matter is that no Jew in the room had kept the law. All of the circumcised individuals, all the individuals that had done or had participated in these rites, they weren't made righteous by the law. Thus, why are we arguing about this? Look at verse 11, but we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. And look at the impact on the people. And all the people kept silent. And they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So as souls are saved, the church must work hard to maintain unity in doctrine and practice. And yes, unity is maintained and rooted in sound doctrine. But could I share with you also the second point? Unity must be maintained through deference. You're not going to see that word deference in this chapter, but you're going to see it in this chapter. Deference. The theme that runs through this chapter is deference. First of all, deference to truth. Okay, so you have two sets of believers and they're discussing. But you know what? In order for unity to take place, they had to be willing to change their mind if the Bible wants them to change their mind. I want you to just think about that. When it comes to you working out differences amongst yourselves or just perhaps internally. Working out what it is that you believe. What does the Bible say? What is it that I'm hearing? Are you willing to change your mind if the Bible points there? I mean, seriously, that's a, that's a legitimate question. Because I think at first glance, we say, oh, of course, I'm willing to change my mind. Well, should be to it. I mean, all I have to do is read this verse. And, it, and, and, and there, I'll change. But it often doesn't happen that way. More often than not, it looks more like verses 6 and 7. 
the apostles and elders came together to look into this matter. And after it had been much debate, you know what was happening? People were listening to one another, and they were listening to one another say things that they probably didn't agree with. You have one side talking about why it is they believe what they believe. And you have another side talking about why it is that they believe what they believe. And if this side has their truth, and this side has their truth, then they're going to be at loggerheads. And yet, what we see here is spirit-indwelt people who were willing to listen. They weren't just willing to listen to any wave of doctrine. They weren't just open to whatever was going to come in. No, we're not, we're not talking about James chapter 1. You know, the person who's just you know, going to and fro and, and he's lacking wisdom and, and he's, just, he's, he's easily bamboozled. We're not talking about that. We're talking about spirit-indwelt believers who feel strongly about their conviction and are working out what it is that they believe in order to reach a conclusion that's biblical. How does that happen without being willing to defer? It doesn't mean that you're a doormat, that you get walked over and it really doesn't matter what I believe. No. But we must enter the body of Christ and interact within the body of Christ in an attitude of first or in an attitude of Philippians chapter 2 verses 4 through 5. Or um, the verses 3 and 4. Esteeming the interests of others as superior to our own. So guess what? When I'm working this out, it's not necessarily about me defeating their argument. In fact, can I just ask a favor? Could we expunge that type of thinking? from our discussions within Christianity? Defeating? You know, I, I thought we were supposed to persuade unbelievers. Not defeat them. And God's going to do that in the end. They'll realize they're wrong. I promise. But among believers, especially in the context of when we have new believers, older believers, and everyone in between, and you have the inevitable things that come up. It's not my job to defeat the argument of somebody else and to prove them wrong and prove me right. In fact, what usually comes of that? Not unity, right? Dissension. Unity must be maintained through deference. First, how do we see deference in this? First of all, we see deference to truth. Christians actually had to be willing to change their mind. And there was obvious disagreement. And it was resolved by false teaching condemned. Now this is really important to understand. Verse 10. Look at what, look at what um, Peter says. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? He doesn't just say, I can see where you're coming from, and I get it, and maybe that's good for you. He's calling it out and saying it's wrong. Look at verse 24. These people that came down from Judea that were spreading these false teachings. You know, so this letter goes out. Verse 23 in context. And they sent this letter by them. The apostles and brethren who are elders to the brethren in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia who are from the Gentiles, greetings. Verse 24, 
since we have heard that some of our number to whom we gave no instruction have disturbed you with their words unsettling your souls. Now, how did the people way back in verse 5 who are saying it's necessary to circumcise them to direct them to observe the law of Moses, how do they take that? You know what? We can see how they take it. Verse 22. I'm sorry. Uh, verse, verse, uh, let's go to verse 19. Therefore, it's my judgment, James is saying, that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled by blood. For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he's read in the synagogues every Sabbath. That's context. Verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with this letter. And look down at verse 30. What happens? So when they were sent away with this letter, they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. You know what happened? It was a unanimous decision. Everyone that was part of this council, at the end of this council, at the end of this council, was in agreement. Everyone. It wasn't an 80-20 vote. There was unity. Why was there unity? Because these were spirit-indwelt brethren that were demonstrating deference. Deference, first of all, to truth. And really, that truth speaks to a fundamental reality that they're all on the same team, if I can put it that way. It wasn't that you had those Judaizers, the Judaizing believers over here, and then you had you know, Peter, and you had James, and the others who really didn't feel like you know, the Gentiles had to be circumcised, and that they were duking it out. They were all spiritually on the same team. You know, when it comes to disagreements within the body of Christ. I don't know that that's where we go to start off with. We're in the same team here. I mean, imagine that when there comes a difficulty with a brother or sister in Christ, to start off by admitting we both are on the same team. Now, we might view things really differently right now. And our emotions might be high. And frankly, we might be wounded or offended. But let's start off by being in agreement. Are you in Christ? Yes. Am I in Christ? Yes. Light, that's what 1 John calls me, plus light, that's what 1 John calls you if you're a believer, light plus light equals what? Light. Do you ever have a room get darker when you put on two lights? Like they counter each other out? That's not just wishful thinking. I would say, based upon what we see here, from a doctrinal standpoint, that should be the expectation. Isn't that the expectation of church discipline? Restoration? Wasn't that the expectation of Philemon? Paul talking to Philemon and Onesimus running away, yet being saved, and now he's coming back seeking to be restored with his former master, but now brother in Christ? 
We're on the same team. That should count for something. That should count for a lot. That should be the foundation upon which restoration and, and the discussion takes place. But second of all, deference, we said unity must be maintained through deference to truth, but unity must be maintained, and, and this is just a, a natural progression here, unity must be demonstrated in deference to one another. As I said before, agreement was unanimous from the top down, which allowed for the congregations both in Jerusalem and Antioch to be encouraged. Now, as I look at this chapter, I told you before that deference is just kind of bleeding through this whole chapter. What I want to do, I want to actually walk through first for, for, through Acts 15 and show you where we see deference. Okay? Alright, so verse 2. Okay. When Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined... Who's the brethren? Well, those are the Christians in Antioch. So they're deferring to leadership. Defer, determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. It was a hot topic there in Antioch. There's lots of dissension. But they were going to defer leaders. Let's take care of it. So, first step. Trusting their leadership. Second step. Look at Peter showing deference. And we read verses 7-11. through 11, But Peter's testimony to the spiritually, spiritual equality that Jews and Gentiles enjoyed. Showing deference to these Gentile believers. We're the same. In fact, look at verse 10. This is a beautiful text. Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of who? The disciples. Who's he talking about? He's talking about the Gentiles. The Gentiles were called disciples. That's pretty significant. Who were the disciples that we know of? Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, his brother, John. Right? We have the, you know, the, the 12, except the one defected, and then we had another one. Those are the disciples. Not according to Peter here. He's calling these Gentile converts disciples. Thirdly, you know who's a real minor character in all of this? Paul. Hey, where does he show up? Well, he shows up in verse 12. All the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul. Now, you might say, eh, it's not that big of a deal as far as word order, Barnabas and Paul, but it actually is pretty significant. Because in Acts chapter 13 and 14, where you have Paul on his missionary journey, anytime Barnabas is mentioned, he's mentioned second with the exception of what happened there in Lystra when they were recognized as gods. And then Barnabas was viewed as Zeus and Paul was Hermes. If that's unfamiliar, listen to last week's lesson. Okay? Or last week's sermon, I should say. Even earlier in this chapter, verse 2, when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension. Guess what Paul was doing here? He wasn't speaking or teaching doctrine. He was testifying to what God had done. He was like you know, evidence for the defense, perhaps. Where he's just saying what God did. He's not giving long sermons. He's not preaching doctrine. You know what he's doing? He's taking a back seat. Not just a back seat to the whole group, but a back seat even to Barnabas. Why would he do that? Because Barnabas was well known amongst the Jewish community. So was Paul, but for wrong reasons. Remember what Paul did before he got saved? 
This is significant. This is the first church council. And Paul, being an apostle himself, could have even pulled rank and said, listen, I saw Christ. I have just as much say in the matter. But you know what Paul's doing? He's stepping back. He's trusting the other brothers. He's trusting the other believers. You see Paul demonstrating deference. He deferred to the leadership of Peter and James. We also see deference to Jews. You say, boy, it seems like they're getting the tough end of the bargain here because, you know, they're the ones that, you know, they had these practices, but now, you know, they're being kind of called out by James in this letter. But, but keep in mind, verse 19, it's my judgment, James says, we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among Gentiles, but that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated to idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Why? For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So what's taking place here is there's a letter going out saying, okay, Gentiles, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to follow that. But we do ask you abstain from sexual immorality. And oh, there's also some dietary laws that we, don't want, you, that we want you to honor. You say, wait a second, dietary laws? Didn't like, those get done away with later on? You know, what about Romans 14? What about 1 Corinthians 8? You know, those other passages. Well, we're still fresh off of the law being preached in every synagogue among, uh, for hundreds of years. Verse 21 says, For Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him. You know what that means? The believers in these early churches would have been very familiar with these dietary laws. And so it's asking the Gentiles, defer. Defer to these Jews who have these sensitivities. And please, don't eat meat contaminated by idols. And don't eat things that have been strangled. And please don't you know, eat those that have been cooked. Because it was directly associated with paganism. There's a fresh association. And so the Jewish leaders here wanted the Gentiles to be willing to defer to the Jews, at least at this point in time. And oh, by the way, lest we forget about the Gentiles, the Gentiles, they aren't even present. Don't you think they would have wanted to have a say in the matter here? Especially given kind of what was at stake? There's a whole lot at stake. And yet we don't see one Gentile raising their voice talking at all about this. They were deferring to where the gospel had come from. Jerusalem. Judea. Though this is a Gentile issue, the Gentile Christians expressed their spiritual deference and thankfulness. Verse 31, when they, these Gentiles in other cities had read it, they rejoiced because of the encouragement. Alright, so so what? So what? What does this have to do with you? What does this have to, me, to do with me? Just two points of application and we're done. Okay? First of all, we should not be surprised when there are doctrinal and practical disagreements when new believers enter the body of believers. Okay? We should not be surprised. As much as we want evangelism, and we do, as much as we want to see souls saved, and we do, 
as much as we want to see them added to the church, you do realize what you're asking for. It's the introduction, perhaps, of new doctrine and different practices. How so? Well, new believers bring in new their new experiences in the context of understanding their faith. They bring with them a context of understanding their, their new faith. Okay, so, so let me ask you this, just as an example. How much do we have in common with Roman Catholics? A lot. A lot. Okay? So, when we talk about forgiveness, say for example, asking forgiveness, is it important to, under, is it important to understand what they mean when they talk about forgiveness? And is it important to understand what we're trying to say when we're talking about forgiveness? Absolutely. Do you know how much tradition and family ties play into Catholicism that aren't necessarily a bad thing? And especially when we have so much in common? You know, so for example, you know, a crucifix really isn't a bad thing. So when should the newly converted Roman Catholic get rid of all the crucifixes in their home? I mean, are, are we, are, you know, when should they stop signing? I mean, I'm not saying that those things aren't important, but if we're not careful, we can put God's, we can put God's work in, in, in such a way that we're actually trying to, to bring it about a little bit more faster than what God's doing. Does that make sense? So it's like, hey, when I was saved, this is what God did in me. And as a result, isn't that happening with you? And if it's not, why not? Hey, you sure? Because, boy, this really changed fast in my life. And, and so that being said, you know, when you have new believers come in, and that's just one example, but I think often as older believers, and I'm speaking to a room, many of which have, many of you have been saved for many years, older believers often discover what they're really holding on to when their beliefs or perhaps traditions are confronted. What things do new believers need to give up when they become believers? I asked this question earlier on. And how quickly? Often we can expect new Christians to put off and put on things that God made us sensitive to at a different rate instead of letting God put his finger on those areas that he wants to change and when he wants to change them. He's going to change them. He is. It's impossible to be a Christian and not change. It's impossible to be a Christian and not become more Christ-like. It's going to happen. If it doesn't, it's an absence of spiritual life. That's called spiritual death. A person probably isn't, they aren't. They're not born again if they never change. And so they are going to change, and God has placed you in their lives to be able to perhaps show them a word as a discipler or model out the word just in life. This ought not to give us anxiety or heartburn when things that change really quickly or were really obvious to us aren't as obvious to them. Or at least right away. Okay? There's a level of deference. Listening. 
what is it that they're processing? You know, um, this isn't a bad thing, but I've, if, I could probably go on a really nice vacation if I had a nickel for every person that, when they came here to Grace Church, said, boy, I didn't realize I had to dress up so nice. You know? And, and we would never say, you need to have a dress code here. We never, never would say that, okay? But there is a sense to where if we don't get to know that person, and we don't get to have a relationship with them, and they don't get to understand who we are as people, and we're just kind of waving to them figuratively with our windows up, you know, we go out, we come in, say hi, hi, I'm so-and-so, it's nice to meet you, thank you for coming. And that's really the extent of it then perhaps their impression might be valid. That in order to be acceptable, maybe there does need to be a certain appearance that we must maintain and must have. Is that the only application? No. But it's just something. I, I mean, I hear it like once a month with our guests that come to Grace. Boy, everybody dresses up really nice here. The last thing I want them to think is that in order to be approved to God, they have to dress up nice. And I don't think any, none of us would want, want that. You know? Why do we? And why am I wearing a coat and a tie? And, and how mature does a spiritual guy have to be before he realizes that he should wear a coat and tie? And we kind of chuckle at that, but, but seriously, I mean, these are the, when we have new believers coming in and, and okay, Grace Church of Manor, which has been around for a long time, and, and so we have these things, this is kind of the way we do it, and, and, and if we're not careful, the way we do it gets attached onto the evidence of change in our life, when in fact, it really isn't that at all. Does that make sense? This is something that, that again, it shouldn't catch us off guard, and when we are properly relating to unbelievers, and I'm sorry, when we're properly relating to believers within the body of Christ, when we're seeking to build them up, when we come with an attitude of deference, when I walk into the room, and, and honestly, the interests of others are more important than my interests, then I think these situations do resolve themselves, and they resolve themselves in a, a good way, in a positive way. So we shouldn't be surprised when there are doctrinal, practical disagreements when new believers enter the body. But second of all, the other point that we see here is that unity and leadership and unity within the body go hand in hand. I think we'll enjoy the fruit of the Spirit more as leaders lead biblically and as all members show deference to one another. You know, recently, uh, one of you in this room actually came and we're just you know, sharing how much of a blessing it is that, that some of the pastors that, that we had shared testimonies of sharing the gospel. Like how great it is to be able to you know, have folks that are sharing the gospel and they're carrying it, and it's so much of an encouragement. But can I say the other lane? Can I talk about the other lane of the street? Which is, do you know how awesome it is to hear of you sharing the gospel and you discipling and how much easier it is for me to be able to do that knowing that you're doing that? And there's just this level of unity that when we have that taking place and there's that desire to know this book and to help others understand it and then to live it out, that as we do that and as we have disagreements and conflicts, that when we have that mutual edification, unity is not just the hoped-for goal, but we might even say it's the anticipated goal. 
the expected goal. And that's a blessing. I don't know what the expectations were of the Christians going into Jerusalem when they first had this council. And was it just going to blow up in their face? I mean, we're not talking about arguing about the color of carpet and splitting the church. We're talking about what is it that really saves someone. This was a big deal. And at the end, what we see is we see people leaving with joy. We see error identified and truth vindicated. And everybody's happy about it. People have changed. The gospel continues to go forward. Now, we put a little asterisk. And this kind of leads us to next week. There is a difference between a unity in doctrine and unity in application. Because I didn't preach on all of Acts 15. Because at the end of Acts 15, we actually see some pretty sharp disagreements between really mature Christians. You know, Paul and Barnabas, who have been like this, all of a sudden, so what's up with that? Okay, we'll come back next week, kind of give you a little teaser. Okay, but in all seriousness, though, there is a difference between a unity in doctrine, and there can be and there must be a unity in doctrine, but it will come when there is unity demonstrated through deference. We know this word, and we love one another. Okay, let's pray. God, thanks so much for this day and for your word. Or there's a lot to chew on. We just scratched the surface here of Acts 15 and this council and, and, and what really was achieved and, and just the monumental nature of Gentiles being added to the family of God. Lord, something that was completely foreign. People that were completely foreign. Now not just being okay, but being brothers and sisters, worshiping. What a change. God, help us as believers. Perhaps we don't have the societal stigmas maybe that were as pronounced in Acts 15, but God, I think each one of us, there are things that perhaps we add on or that we hold on to that when we're really honest with ourselves and when we interact with new believers and we see what God is doing in them and we're confronted perhaps with a, a, a realization that maybe we need to change too. God, give a sense of humility and deference so that we might enjoy unity. You produce unity the Spirit helps us to maintain unity. But God, may we work hard at unity that's grounded in your word and it's maintained by people who are willing to defer. Lord, that aren't holding on to their rights as if it were a rope that if they were to let go, they'd fall and die. God, may we love one another and may we express that in a biblical way. In Christ's name, amen.